Gates, the biggest firebrand inside of the House of Representatives. You're not taking Matt Gates off the board, okay? Because Matt Gates is an American patriot and Matt Gates is an American hero. We will not continue to allow the Uniparty to run this town without a fight. I want to thank you, Matt Gates, for holding the line. Matt Gates is a courageous man. If we had hundreds of Matt Gates in DC, the country turns around. It's that simple. He's so tough, he's so strong, he's smart, and he loves this country. Matt Gates. It is the honor of my life to fight alongside each and every one of you. We will save America. It's choose your fighter time. Send in the firebrands. Welcome back to Firebrand. We are live broadcasting out of room 2021 of the Rayburn House Office Building here on the Capitol Complex in Washington, D.C. We've got new evidence regarding impeachment and Joe Biden directly benefiting from the Hunter Biden shell companies that were moving funds from a lot of corrupt foreigners into the family members of, in fact, Joe Biden and Joe Biden himself. We've also got more evidence about Bidenomics continuing to fail, showing economic decline and becoming a bit of a political albatross. House Democrats indicating that they might not even be campaigning on the Bidenomics brand, designating it as tone deaf, of course, as stuff continues to cost more and the American people continue to have lower and lower prospects of their economic future. Running on Bidenomics is a bad idea and acting it into policy an even worse idea. But I have to start with the story that's got everyone in the Sunshine State fuming. The Florida State Seminoles, undefeated ACC conference champions left out of the college football playoff. This committee of oracles sit together and they were able to determine that the four teams that would compete for the national championship would include two teams, Alabama and Texas, who had indeed lost a game when the Knowles had gone undefeated. The college football playoff committee asserted that the reason an injury to FSU star quarterback Jordan Travis in the North Alabama game several weeks ago showcased a different style of Seminoles offense. Well, you know what? I believe that because Florida State showed diversity in their capability of winning, they ought to have been rewarded, not punished by the college football playoff committee. They won games scoring over 40 points, like in the first game of the season against LSU. They continued to have a dominant offense, of course, the quarterback, Jordan Travis, being central to that. But even after his injury, the Knowles showed they were able to win with a backup quarterback in Gainesville, a hostile environment. Our friends down there in Hogtown, not always too hospitable to the Knowles. But then also with defense. They say defense wins championships, but I guess it couldn't get you into the championship game if you're the Knowles. They held a Louisville team with a pretty sophisticated offensive scheme, a good quarterback and plumber, held them to just field goals, showed championship-caliber defense, but not allowed to play. Showed different ways to win, not allowed to play. Instead, people get to play for the championship, who lost games. And is it just me, or does this signal a societal turn away from merit and winning towards sophistry? It was a point made by ESPN's Burger McFarlane. He was a dissenting voice, a voice in the wilderness, but take a listen right now. This is a travesty to the sport. 
because we go out there on the field and we play the game. And regardless of whether it looks good at the quarterback position, regardless of whether we win with offense, whether we win with defense, the name of the game is to win. And that's a reason never before has this not been done. Winning a Power 5 conference, going undefeated, and not getting into the playoff. So I, I understand we want to look at style points and who are we going to get for the best matchups. But that's not what this is about. This is about understanding to get the four best teams. One team has a loss, and that's Alabama. One team doesn't in Florida State. And the fact that this committee could take a Power 5 conference champion that's undefeated, those kids have went out there and busted their behind and not get into the playoff based on the eye test. Mind you, this is the same Alabama team who needed a prayer in Jordan Hare to beat an Auburn team that lost to New Mexico State. So that's really what has me bothered right now. That was Booger McFarland standing up for the prospect of merit and winning. And this has gotten the attention of Florida Senator Rick Scott, who sent a letter to Mr. Boo Corrigan, the chairman of the College Football Selection Committee. And in his letter, Senator Scott notes that in the 10-year history of the college football playoff, they have never excluded the undefeated champion of a Power Five conference. Uh, and he continues to write, beyond the fury and heartbreak caused by the committee's decision, there are also financial implications that must be discussed. The ACC and FSU have been denied $2 million of revenue distribution from the college football playoff due to the committee's decision to remove the Seminoles from playoff contention. Indeed, there is that financial impact. And so Senator Scott has sent a list of... Uh, of 10 things that he wants from the college football playoffs, including their listing step and their ranking step votes, any notes or recordings or reports detailing their deliberations, emails and text messages, including those back and forth with ESPN Disney among the members, uh, among anyone else, and he demands these things uh, quite promptly. So we'll see... If Senator Scott is able to get an answer to those questions, we'll be eager to see if it, uh, if it turns up any malfeasance or misfeasance. President Trump weighed in as well, putting out on Truth Social the statement, Florida State was treated very badly by the committee. They became the first Power Five team to be left out of the college football playoffs. Really bad lobbying effort. Let's blame to Sanctimonious. Says with a little tongue-in-cheek there. I don't know if I blame our governor for that. I blame the College Football Selection Committee. We've got also important information on impeachment that I want to bring to your attention. Uh, committee Chairman James Comer leads our oversight effort. He now has evidence that Awaska, one of the shell companies that was run by Hunter Biden, has made direct payments to Joe Biden. Now, keep in mind, we call these business entities companies, but they made no product, provided no service. They were merely pass-throughs to get foreign money into the bank accounts of the Biden family. Here's the Oversight Chairman, James Comer. Today, the House Oversight Committee is releasing subpoenaed bank records that show Hunter Biden's business entity, Owasco PC, made direct monthly payments to Joe Biden. This wasn't a payment from Hunter Biden's personal account, but an account for his corporation that received payments from China and other shady corners of the world. At this moment, Hunter Biden is under an investigation by the Department of Justice for using a Wasco PC for tax evasion and other serious crimes. And based on whistleblower testimony, we know the Justice Department made a concerted effort to prevent investigators from asking questions about Joe Biden. I wonder why. The more we learn, 
It appears the Justice Department was trying to cover up for the Bidens until brave IRS whistleblowers came forward and a federal judge rejected the sweetheart plea deal. Payments from Hunter's business entity to Joe Biden are now part of a pattern revealing Joe Biden knew about, participated in, and benefited from his family's influence peddling schemes. When Joe Biden was vice president, he spoke by phone, attended dinners, and had coffee with his son's foreign business associates. He allowed his son to catch a ride on Air Force Two at least a dozen times to sell the Biden brand around the world. Hunter Biden requested office keys to be made for his office mate, Joe Biden, in space he planned to share with a Chinese energy company. We've revealed how Joe Biden received checks from his family that were funded by the Biden's influence peddling schemes with China, no less. The House Oversight Committee continues to investigate Joe Biden's involvement in his family's domestic and international business schemes at a rapid pace. We will continue to uncover the facts and provide transparency about the findings of our investigation. President Biden and his family must be held accountable for this blatant corruption. The American people expect no less. That was Oversight Chairman James Comer signaling a new level of intensity in this effort. Keep in mind, Hunter Biden and Frank Biden hadn't even gotten a subpoena when Kevin McCarthy was speaker. Mike Johnson becoming speaker seems to have accelerated at least some of the oversight efforts. And we get this report out of NBC News' Christina Zhao. Speaker Mike Johnson says he thinks he has the votes to authorize a Biden impeachment inquiry, uh, that investigation being led by judiciary oversight in ways and means. And you see from Mike Johnson in this piece, quote, they're preventing at least two or three DOJ witnesses from coming forward and withheld thousands of pages of evidence uh, that as a basis to continue this effort. Mike Johnson spoke about this with House Republican Conference Chair Elise Stefanik recently on Fox and Friends. Take a listen. All right, let's get to uh, another topic that will require holding the entire Republican Conference together as well, and that would be the 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 concept of actually formally uh, declaring an impeachment inquiry. Yes. Uh, thus far, it has been just that, an inquiry. Based on what's been found, do you as the speaker, with that power, plan on bringing uh, an actual vote on impeachment? It's, it's become a necessary step. Elise and I both served on the impeachment defense team of uh, Donald Trump twice when the Democrats used it for brazen partisan political sure. purposes. We decried that use of it. This is very different. Remember, we are the rule of law team. We have to do it very methodically. Our three committees of jurisdiction, Judiciary Oversight, Ways and Means, have been doing an extraordinary job following the evidence where it leads. But now we're being stonewalled by the White House because they're preventing at least two to three DOJ witnesses from coming forward, a former White House counsel. The National Archives, the White House has withheld thousands of pages of evidence. So a formal impeachment inquiry vote on the floor will allow us to take it to the next necessary step. And I think it's something we have to do at this juncture. We have to do it. That's the House Speaker indicating that the heat is getting turned up on the Bidens. And as that's happening, it's not like they're getting good news on the economic front. Today, Breitbart News reported that data from the Commerce Department indicated that core capital goods orders have fallen to the smallest annual gain since 2020. Now, this report explained that new orders from U.S.-made capital goods, a key measure of business spending, fell three-tenths of a percentage point in October after experts originally estimated that there would only be a decline of about a tenth of a percentage point.
So it was three times worse than expected. This report went on to say that capital goods orders are up 0.3% compared to a year ago, but that is, quote, the smallest 12-month gain since September of 2020. Now, the most interesting part of this is an Axios report from yesterday, the day before the data from the Commerce Department came out, titled, House Democrats Ditch Bidenomics Messaging. Now, here Axios notes that House Democrats have rejected the Biden White House's months-long attempt to try to embrace and own and sell this term Bidenomics. And it shows that there is a real divide between Democrats who will be on the ballot and the messaging that the White House wants to lean into for the coming year. The Biden White House has attempted to use this term and they've tried to use it to trot out the president's economic record, but it appears to have backfired. Axios's source says the use of the term Bidenomics was, quote, tone deaf to people economically struggling and that it took far too much to explain to voters. Now, according to the report, House Democrat leadership, including their campaign groups and big super PACs, have not used the term Bidenomics in months and have been avoiding the term on social media since polling has shown that the term is ineffective and absolutely not breaking through. So massive fail on the Bidenomics front. And it's not as if the administration can turn to what's going on in the world as any sort of stability. Remember, Joe Biden ran to be the calming, peaceful influence on the world, but we are now seeing just conflict erupt in just about every continent on the planet Earth. Here is John Kirby hitting the Sunday show circuit, talking about how the U.S. missed intelligence in the Middle East. Take a listen. John, I have to ask you about this New York Times reporting, which found that Israeli officials received Hamas's specific attack plan over a year ago. Was the United States aware of this intelligence? And if not, why not? The intelligence community has uh, has indicated that uh, that they uh, did not have uh, access to this document. There's no indications at this time that they had any access to this document beforehand. Should they have, given how closely U.S. and Israeli intelligence officials coordinate or are supposed to coordinate? Intelligence is a mosaic, and uh, sometimes, you know, you can fashion things together and get a pretty good picture. Other times, you know, that the, there's pieces of the puzzle that are missing. As I, as I said, our own intelligence community said that they've looked at this. They have no indications at this time that, uh, that they had any advance warning of this document or any knowledge of it. John, very quickly, was this a failure on the part of Israeli intelligence and U.S. intelligence? I think there's going to be a time uh, and a place for Israel to do that sort of forensic work. I mean, Pr Prime Minister Netanyahu's already spoken pretty candidly about this and calling it, you know, a failure on their part. They'll take a look at this at the right time. They need to do that. Right now, though, the focus has got to be on making sure that they can eliminate this truly genocidal threat to the Israeli people. Must be tough continuing to have to explain away failures in intelligence and tactics and capabilities, but that is increasingly what the Biden White House has had to do. President Trump gave us peace through strength. They give us war without winning. I uh, also want to bring your attention to a story I saw on The Federalist that's concerning about how these efforts to try to take people's law license away has been increasingly weaponized. Uh, the Federalist gives us this headline, Feds withhold election docs key to Jeff Clark's D.C. bar defense. Jeff Clark, of course, the Department of Justice official who's been scapegoated by Jack Smith, scapegoated by the January 6th committee. He was concerned about very real efforts to 
try to undermine our election through malign influence, and he wanted to investigate any sort of claim of fraud or challenge, and he was disrupted in his efforts to do so. And now they're trying to take his law license away. So he wants to get the predicate information from the Department of Justice and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And according to this piece in The Federalist, both the Office of DNI and the DOJ have refused to hand over several key election integrity documents that would aid Trump-era DOJ official Jeff Clark's defense against the D.C. bar, which seeks to discipline him for noting inconsistencies in the 2020 election. Clark requested several key pieces of evidence related to the election issues from the ODNI and the DOJ to prepare for his upcoming defense in the D.C. Barr case. His attempt to secure due process, however, was hampered by stonewalling from both ODNI and DOJ. Jeff Clark truly standing in the breach. Before we go, I wanted to bring you into a conversation I was able to have recently with Mark Kay. Mark Kay is one of our great conservative media personalities in the Sunshine State. He wrote a book about maybe some of the features of the Christmas story you're not entirely aware of. So get in the season and get ready for this discussion with Mark Kay. Take a listen. We're joined now by Mark Kay, who's the host of the Mark Kay Show, which you can find at 104.5 in Jacksonville, WKOB, and syndicated throughout the country. Mark, I want to get to the book you wrote about Christmas, but before that, just your reaction to kind of the news that uh, that has rocked Washington. George <laughs> Santos being expelled, the Republican majority reduced. Your take. Well, you know, I always, whenever something like this happens, I run right to the congressional record and I look to see who voted which way, because that's important. I think a lot of people... They forget that uh, the, the reason these things happen is because their political leaders who they voted for and elected locally go up there and make these decisions. And lo and behold, there he was, District 5 in Florida, John Rutherford, my very own representative, voting to oust George Santos, along with another, you know, couple of surprising names on the docket. But uh, the, uh, my reaction was a reaction that a lot of my audience members had, and that is, look, we know the guy had some questionable behavior. We know he maybe didn't run the best campaign and he maybe spent money on stuff he shouldn't have, but he's not guilty of anything yet. He hasn't been convicted of anything yet. And isn't that the precedent that's been set in the House of Representatives for expelling members? That's what it was with Trafficant and everyone else. So, um, yeah, it seems like another win for the Democrat Party and another another self-inflicted loss for the Republicans. And that's got all of us scratching our heads. Yeah, when we're not able to do the budgetary work that we need to do, mm -hmm. the border work that we need to do because we're short, you know, this vote, I wonder how uh, much moral self-preening some of my Republican colleagues will do on this point. You know, one thing that really got me, Mark, was that we had four members of Congress who mm -hmm. stood in the way of impeachment and accountability for Mayorkas and then voted to expel Santos. That's uh, Congresswoman Virginia Fox, Congressman Ken Buck, Congressman Cliff Benz, and Congressman Duarte of California. How do you square being a Republican, voting to expel Santos, but then frustrating the effort to impeach Mayorkas? You know, it's interesting because we were chatting with your buddy, uh, Congressman Aaron Bean, the other day, and I said to him, doesn't anybody ever just run into the room and say, look, the Democrats all vote together. They don't like each other either, but at least they hate us more. Can we do the same thing? And he said, yeah, you know, there's a lot of folks from from blue states. There's a lot of, you know, you got these California Republicans, as you mentioned. You got Ken Buck, who's basically out the door. He's just trying to, I believe, burn the place down on his way out. So it's, it's difficult from us lo outside looking in 
to think to ourselves constantly, you've got red state Democrats, but they don't care what happens. They always vote with the blue state Democrats. For whatever reason, the blue state Republicans, many of whom you just mentioned, they don't vote for the Republicans. And I guess they've just got their local media. Maybe they're maybe they're they're way too worried that they're going to get primaried because they don't have a strong enough, you know, GOP backing them back home. Who knows the reason? But the Democrats have really put fear in all of those blue state uh, congressmen on the Republican side. And it's working. Yeah, red state or blue state, I wouldn't want to have to make the case to my voters that, right? <laughs> that I was like hyper principled vis-a-vis yeah. Santos, but then not so much on Mayorkas. Uh, I want to get to this great Christmas uh, book that uh, that you wrote, The Untold Story of Christmas. Uh, and and here we go. I'm going to get a good good shot of the cover. Oh, look at that. Look at that beautiful thing. So what <laughs> what uh, what do you think people need to know about Christmas that they don't know? Well, you know, this is a uh, this is the story that we started telling a couple of years ago. For a lot of people know that I slid into Rush Limbaugh's spot after he passed on all of our our uh, our networks, our all of our network radio stations, and he every Thanksgiving would tell the the true story of Thanksgiving, which is an important moment in our in our American society that has been totally bastardized and totally rewritten by the left. They've tried to take the Thanksgiving story and turn it from what it was a, a, a turning point in American history into a a story of racist Americans and. So so Rush took the time every year to make sure that people know the, knew the truth. And, you know, people would call my show and they'd say, look, will you tell that story? And I said, absolutely not. That was Rush's story. You can hear him on YouTube or where else uh, read that. But at Christmas time, I did decide to start my own tradition by sharing one of my own stories. And it's a story basically of the birth of Jesus as seen, though, from the side of Caesar Augustus, who a lot of people don't know is the guy who wanted to tax the citizens of Rome and in doing so called a census because before you tax people, you got to count them. And that was what led Mary and Joseph uh, out of Judea into Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. And there's a real there's a real interesting foil between the life of Caesar and the life of Jesus. And I've woven them together into what I think is a really, truly inspirational story that's going to really help reinstill those Christian values in your kids and your family and whoever you share it with. And, and we share it on our radio show every year. And now, because it's in printed form, you can share it with your family whenever you want. Hey, everyone knows you know, Julius Caesar as the Caesar, but it was, in fact, Caesar Augustus, who who built the great cathedrals and did so much to uh, to bring Rome to a point of uh, of great splendor, uh, is it is it just that he didn't reach as tragic an end, and so thus uh, the tragedy draws our attention to that history more? Well, you know, it's interesting because Caesar Augustus, the reason he wanted all of these cathedrals built and all of these altars and all of these golden marble statues in his image is because his own Senate told him he was a god. He thought he was a god. He wanted to be revered and remembered as a god, and that's why he needed the money. That's why Mary and Joseph and everyone else in, in Judea was getting taxed. And in the end, years later, yes, we know who Caesar Augustus is, but it's not him. It's the poor child, the son of a carpenter born in a manger who is actually revered as a god, who actually is remembered, and who has cathedrals and marble statues and gold statues and altars built in his memory, not by himself, but by those of us who love him and worship him for years and years and years. The book is The Untold Story of Christmas. The author is Mark Kay, the host of The Mark Kay Show, my good friend and fellow Florida man. And Mark, as people understand better the intersection of what was going on from a faith standpoint, from a Messiah standpoint, and then also this, this, I guess, the true machinations of government, right? The census, the taxing, weaving those together. How do you think that can enrich people's understanding of Christmas? You know, it's really interesting that you bring that up because the more I study the Bible, the more I study history, the more I just 
open up the, you know, go to the Drudge Report, you see that these whole things, it's happening over and over and over again. The excessive taxing for things that the people don't actually need, but that the uh, that the elite want, it's happening today in our very own society. And the more you study what's going on in America and the world, you'll notice, hey, that was happening back in the time of Christ. These, these you know, uh, histories and these stories continue to repeat. Uh, when you look at, you know, what happened with Jesus and Mary as parents, the things that they faced are things that parents today are facing. And of course, the attacks on our morality too. So when you look at the study of the Messiah or the birth of Jesus and the life and times, you'll see that they always say those who don't study are doomed to repeat it. And it seems like even today we are repeating that message, these fake guys. I mean, Joe Biden claims to be a Catholic, but if you really understood what Catholicism was, you'd see that that's probably not the case. So as I read the book and, you know, you, you present these scenes and images of Judea and Samaria and this trip to Bethlehem, and, you know, my heart couldn't help but go to uh, the people in Israel now and what's happening yeah. in, in this great conflict. What's your perspective on how all that ends? You know, it's really interesting because you bring up a fantastic point. We're listening to the battles of the Jews and the Muslims, Jews and the Muslims, Palestine and Israel. But what we're talking about is the place where Jesus was born and where Christianity was born. And Jerusalem and, Tel and all the, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. They're talking about a place that is of historical significance to Christians as well. And that gets lost in the shuffle. The big difference there is that Christianity is not, it's not a government. You know, Israel is a government and Gaza is a government and Hamas is, well, they're a terrorist organization pretending to be a government. So in the mix of it all, Christians, I think, are torn between a place in this world that is holy to them as well and two governments that they are unfamiliar with and are kind of not bound to. However, when you look at who's right and who's wrong, I think it's pretty clear one side is right and the other side is Hamas. So um, I think, you know, from a Christian standpoint, it's pretty clear to see which side we should choose. And anyone who chooses otherwise really should probably reflect on their on their Christian morality and, and you know, maybe maybe do some soul searching. Right now, we're at this real interesting time where the, this concept of the separation of church and state is interfacing with new jurisprudence that we've gotten out of the Trump Supreme Court. Uh, there was that case where the uh, high school football coach was punished because mm -hmm. after the game, they went to the 50-yard line and prayed, and the, uh, the Trump court overturned that, said, no, you can't punish you know, a coach for praying at the 50-yard line. And I wonder what frontiers that opens up, kind of in light of the themes in your book to say, look, you, religion and government, even from the beginning of the Christian faith, that there, there is an intertwining. There is a, a, a causal relationship. When government does certain things, it has this, this cascading effect on how faith evolves and develops. And then certainly the founders of our country hoped that our faith would, inf would inspire us to build a better government than had ever yeah. been built before. How do you think we, we strike this balance? How should lawmakers and Americans think about the way to have the best society in our country? Well, you know, I'm I'm very hands off. You know, the United States of America, small government is is the only good government there is. So the less that there's interference, I believe, of course, the better. Being here in the state of Florida, we all believe that school is for writing, reading, arithmetic, you know, all those other great the civics would be nice if we threw that back into our educational system and that everyone else can just, you know, live by the tenets of the uh, of the First Amendment, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. The problem is when people get 
get offended, either really offended or fake offended um, at somebody else's beliefs and somebody else's religion and somebody else's practices. I've been to tons of places where people have prayed and I never, I just would look at them and say, oh, that's nice and you know, think nothing of it. They believe one thing. I've seen, uh, you know, people from other religions who I don't understand what they're doing, but I appreciate their right and their desire to do it. Uh, if we can all get back to kind of minding our own business and realizing that the less government overreach we have, the better. I think that that's something that, uh, I think that that's something that could really instill some more of that religious freedom that doesn't overstep the separation of church and state. Although, as you pointed out, without the church, we wouldn't have a state, so. Yeah, I, I when you look at, the, obviously, the founding of the country and this, yeah. <laughs> this hope that uh, free exercise of religion, not the establishment of a national religion, but certainly you know, a, a nation built on Judeo-Christian values mm -hmm. would be one that would be inclusive and accommodating uh, to people of all faiths. Uh, there are times I wonder whether or not we've really achieved that. It's going to be interesting moving forward. I'm really, I'm really questioning this whole debate in the United States of America between Israel and Palestine or Israel and Hamas. And I think what that shows is that there is a basic lack of understanding fundamentally the two faiths, because really, if you look at it, what the people who are pro-Hamas, the people that came into your office building and sat down in the vestibule and started screaming and had to be removed by the police, uh, what those folks are doing is they're attacking the Jewish religion when really their qualm is with the Jewish state, the government, the IDF. Um, and that's something that I think is is troubling. Whereas I notice a lot of the Jewish citizens here in the United States and in Israel, they are attacking Hamas. They don't attack Muslims per se. They attack the organization that is that is put in place to govern um, the Muslim body in Palestine and in, and in Gaza. So they're able to separate and differentiate. But when it comes to the Jewish state in Israel, people just look at Jews, whether it's a religious sect or a government body or a group of individuals as the same thing. And that's really troubling. And that's where I think we're going to get into danger here in the United States. Lots it's such an essential distinction. And as we come up on the Christmas season, you know, uh, the you can't help but notice that there's more and more an effort to try to uh, have, you know, Christmas light, right? Yeah. Xmas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what does it say uh, about uh, the commercialization of this faith-based holiday that uh, that it's sort of moved away from some of these historical and uh, and religious roots that uh, that you write about in in the book. Well, you know what we're starting to see, uh, kind of from a capitalist standpoint, and I think we saw it with Bob Iger and his announcement that Disney is going to drop the woke stuff because it just doesn't sell anymore, and they're going to get back to their basic tenet of of entertaining families, as which in here here in Florida was what we always thought they were doing all along. Um, I think people are starting to realize that the very the minority, this loud and vocal woke minority, is destroying more companies than it is helping. And before you had the LGBTQ issue, before you had the trans agenda, before you had all that other stuff, you had the anti-Christian or the anti-Christmas agenda. And that is something that, that permeates still today. But my hope is, as we see this parallel economy, you see these places popping up, Rumble and, and Newsmax, where I host my show, as you see, you know, Public Square and Elon Musk, who gets up on stage and tells the advertisers, well, we all know what he told the advertisers to do. I think we're starting to see that the parallel economies are growing and that the Christian, conservative, fundamental American 
American economy has a big, strong voice and that a lot of that Christianity is going to be returning to Christmas. And that is another that is another concept that I hope to I, I want people to know, yes, it's OK to celebrate Christmas, to say Merry Christmas and to read Christmas stories, because no matter what you're celebrating this time of years, I mean, you can say happy holidays, but the holiday that we're all talking about is Christmas. And there is, uh, I think, a real virtue in understanding the history so that people mm -hmm. can can lash that appreciation of Christmas with with what went on and what created this yeah. remarkable moment in the entire human existence. Uh, again, the book is The Untold Story of Christmas. Mark Kay is the author. Mark, how do folks uh, pick up the book? It's available, of course, anywhere books are sold. But if you go to theuntoldstoryofchristmas.com, theuntoldstoryofchristmas.com, you can get a copy. You can even order an autographed copy by me, the author, and we'll get it out to you right away. And how can folks follow you on social media and keep up with all of your great commentary on news and politics, culture, everything that's going on? Well, uh, the best thing to do is just put Mark K, that's M-A-R-K-K-A-Y-E, into your search engine. We're on Facebook, Rumble, Getter, Truth Social. I mean, it's it's harder to avoid me than it is than it is to find me. And of course, you can see our great interviews because, as you know, Congressman Gates has been a, a guest on my show. And, and we've had some fantastic moments, and I can't wait to have you back. Yeah, I know. This has been fun. Usually, you're the one asking me the questions. So I know. <laughs> I've enjoyed this. It's, uh, you know, the, the student gets to become the teacher for a little bit oh. here, and I, uh, I get to put the question to you. Well, hey, thanks for joining me. Thanks for being a firebrand. Thanks for all you do to get the truth out, to get history out, and to celebrate our shared faith. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.